Talking industry, topical debate from the world of engineering, automation and manufacturing. A DFA Manufacturing Media Production. This Talking Industry edition is sponsored by Driving Controls Exhibition, the number one event for automation, power transmission and motion control. Taking place 4th to the 6th of June 2024 at the NEC Birmingham. In association with Manufacturing and Engineering Week, drive the future at www.drives-expo.com. Okay, and a very warm welcome, and it is a warm welcome down here in Southeast London to our latest talking industry um, offering, which is about um, maintenance 4.0, in other words, digital approaches to maintenance. Um, before we start proceedings, I'd like to thank the sponsors of these panel discussions, which we run approximately monthly. Uh, we're sponsored by the Drives and Controls Exhibition, number one event for automation, power transmission and motion control. And it will next be taking place on the 4th to the 6th of June 2024 at our favourite venue, the NEC in Birmingham. And it's in association and part of um, Manufacturing and Engineering Week 2024. Um, it um, can be found, more information can be found on a website, um, drives-expo.com. So welcome to our attendees. Uh, my name is Andy Pai. I'm consultant editor at DFA Media Group, and we produce a range of online and printed publications in the manufacturing and automation sector. Um, so um, for, this, for this morning, we have three excellent speakers with complementary and uh, slightly overlapping um, approaches to um, digital maintenance. Um, and I will quickly introduce them in reverse order. Um, the first one being um, John, uh, we're going to call him John E, um, and he will pronounce his surname correctly, I'm sure. Um, he's more importantly, Professor of Digital Engineering and Head of the Centre for Digital Engineering and Manufacturing at Cranfield University's School of Aerospace, Transport and Manufacturing. And he will be talking in third place, but by no means last, on asset management, data modelling, machine learning, digital twins and augmented reality. So some pretty advanced concepts there. Um, before him, we have um, David Roddis, who is from the MTC, um, where um, we held our um, last live talking industry, which was just over a month ago, which was great fun. We had um, a keynote speaker and three three panels talking about various aspects of manufacturing. Dave is the senior advisor in digital transformation at the MTC. He's uh, he's got 25 years um, experience in engineering, quality, manufacturing. Um, doesn't look old enough, Dave, but there we are. And um, uh, his expertise runs from the shop floor up to uh, managerial levels. So he's got. Um, a great deal of wide ranging experience, which will be very useful. And he's going to focus on condition monitoring um, and how to turn it into a continuous process, how to use sensors, um, uh, particularly how to add technology onto legacy equipment, which um, many um, businesses are, are using these days. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing more from him. And in our first speaker is Richard Jeffers, um, and he um, 
is the founder and man managing director of RS Industria, um, part of the RS group, and um, he's focused on digital approaches for for maintenance. And he's going to talk to us about the culture of predictive maintenance and the sort of wider business plan type levels to start with. So, so that will make an ideal introduction for us. Um, and then subsequently, um, he's got some more advanced technology that he'll talk about later on. So, so without any more ado, um, I will hand over to Richard um, for the first presentation. Good morning, everybody. Uh, good to talk to you about one of my favourite topics, the digitisation and maintenance. Um, so before we get into the digitisation and maintenance, you know, what is what is maintenance? What are we trying to do in the world of maintenance? Uh, so maintenance is the process of keeping plant and equipment in good working condition so that efficiency is retained and the life of that asset is increased. And the thing about maintenance is it's not actually that complicated, but what it is, is really hard work to get it right every day consistently. Uh, and, and there sort of seem to be four generations of maintenance going back to, uh, you know, the Second World War. Um, you know, the first generation of maintenance was very much uh, reactive or time-based maintenance. Uh, and there was really no underpinning understanding of reliability theory and, and why components failed. Uh, and that was why this the strong belief that it was about time-based maintenance. And then in this, you know, moving into the second generation of maintenance in the in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, there was an emerging understanding of reliability theory, very much driven by the civil aerospace industry, uh, and, and a growth of preventative maintenance moving away from just purely time-based. Uh, and you know, and that led to an increased um, asset reliability, lower cost of the ownership, and, and particularly important in the civil aerospace, you know, a reduction in aeroplanes falling out of the sky. Um, and then after some really seminal work done uh, by two guys called Nolan and Heap, starting in 1968 uh, and concluding in 1978, was the development of the third generation of maintenance and reliability centre maintenance and a real under and, and the real development of the underpinning understanding of reliability theory and, and how and why components failed in use and that led to the growing use of condition monitoring condition-based maintenance and, and predictive maintenance and really the theory has been pretty much understood since uh, probably john mowbray's rcm2 book published in 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 the early 90s um, but what's happening now is the development of the fourth generation of maintenance in maintenance 4.0. Uh, and that's driven by the deployment of technology into things we've understood how to do uh, for 50 plus years. But, but now the technology makes it easier to deploy. Uh, the falling cost of that technology also makes it easier to deploy into lower cost and low criticality environments. And so what we see now is the sort of technology that was traditionally only available in, in the aerospace industry or high value fleet operations is, is now being able to be moved into, into broader manufacturing environments. And, and the thing that really underpins the whole world of condition monitoring is, is that understanding of how components fail. And, and you know, as I said, led by Nolan and Heap and repeated on, on a number of studies since, yeah, is the, is the understanding that actually only between 10 and 25% of components fail for time-related use. The other, you know, 75 to 90% of components fail for random reasons. And so condition monitoring, uh, predictive maintenance, 
you know, is all about measuring a leading indicator of that of that random failure in a cost-effective, reliable way. So that the cost of measuring that leading indicator of failure is significantly lower than the uh, impact of that failure, making it cost-effective to deploy the technologies. And as I said, you know, the falling cost of technology, and I'm sure David will build on this, means that some of those technologies that were only applicable for really high-value assets are now applicable for much more routine assets. But so, so why do we? Why does not? Why doesn't everybody do this? Why have we not just embraced predictive maintenance? Uh, I was in a um, manufacturer of uh, it was an aerospace manufacturing business last week. You know the very sector that that created um, predictive maintenance, and I was actually arguing with some of the leadership team there about why time-based maintenance of their machine tools was was value destroying, not value creating. And and even though that sector, you know, is the you know is the birthplace. Uh, of predictive maintenance, there's still a real lack of understanding about the value of predictive maintenance and a perception that predictive maintenance is expensive. Um, and, and the perception is that, uh, you know, planned maintenance or, or even reactive maintenance is, is cheap uh, and, you know, reliability centre maintenance, predictive maintenance is expensive. But the reality is very, very different because down at that lower end of maturity uh, in, in the planned and, and even worse reactive world, it appears cheap because the upfront investment is low, but the reality is very different. You've got a high cost of spare parts, uh, a high cost of labour, a high cost of finished goods to protect your supply chain from, from disruption. Uh, and worst of all, uh, you know, high personal and personnel and operational risks, because invasive reactive maintenance is probably the most dangerous thing that you can do in a manufacturing environment because it's by its nature unplanned. And, and once you move into the world of, of predictive maintenance and, and reliability centre maintenance, yes, there's an upfront investment to get there. But the reality is you then start to have low cost of spares, low cost of labour. You can push down the cost of your finished goods. And most importantly, everything is in control. Everything's done in plan time. So it's intrinsically safer. And, and that's why for me, you know, the emergence of, of digital technologies is, is so exciting. Not because it creates a new world of maintenance, but because it allows techniques that were, were, were tied into very high value sectors now to be able to deploy it into the average manufacturing site. That's really interesting because um, I was going to say, you know, you said that the basic theory goes back to 1968. And my you know, original first question was going to be, why is it taking so long to, to put into practice? And you have partly answered that, to be fair. But then you did say that even in the industries where uh, they were leading these technologies such as aerospace there are still pockets where it's not being adopted so what do we need to do is the question to get um get these techniques more widely uh, adopted and you know with maintenance 4.0 more technology maybe more fear um coming on stream does that make it easier or harder um i'd, I'd like to sort of bring in the other speakers first richard and then you can uh, you can come back and conclude the the answers so david is, is that something you'd like to comment on yeah yeah um i mean the obvious one for me is it's it's education um education of your leadership um if yeah, the business leaders really need to start to understand the benefits of the digital age if you're not bringing in digital and using digital tools you will started to fall behind your competition um, and there's a real need now for the, the business leaders, your leadership team to understand the benefits of digital. 
Otherwise, how are you going to bring in these improvement projects if you don't understand the benefits? And they do improve your business. So I think really it's education of leadership team and then through bringing in the right skills within the business to then manage these new technologies. Yeah, I would I would echo that. I think the skills development and looking at this in a sort of strategic way from the leadership to the sort of mid-managers to those maybe coming into the organizations, how do we have this pipeline and this ability to make decisions from a digital um, 4.0 type perspective? I think that's really something that we need to focus on to be able to have continuous transformation of businesses. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of suggesting going beyond ad hoc introduction of technologies to having a culture where you're embracing new technologies coming into the organizations. Yeah, we, we almost call it looking at things with a digital mindset, um, everything with a digital mindset. I mean, even when we're talking about maintenance now, but you're capturing data, you want to use that data throughout the business because it's not just about maintenance of the machinery. You could start looking at utilization. Um, so it really is about understanding as business leaders how you bring that um that information into the business and really start to look at everything with the digital mindset because it's using data to manage your business better. John, I mean, you you um you you're involved with a uh, with an academic um organisation, so you're training young engineers, um, but no doubt you have lots of interactions as well with more senior people. How how do you keep up to date, and how do you keep your students up to date? And how do you influence the culture in a in a more senior um, managerial environment? Thank you for that question. Um, so we, as Cranfield, we're a wholly postgraduate university. So we uh, also very much focus on working closely with industry. So just as an example, we've got an MSc called Digital and Technology Solutions which was developed with over 20, 25 companies that actually shared the kind of skills requirements that they have. So I think the approach we're taking is very much along the lines of continuous communication with industry, trying to understand the requirements, trying to understand where the skills requirements are uh, over time. And we do that by having the regular advisory boards and engagement uh, with research projects as well. That's also a really interesting way to understand the needs. Um, so we try to have that continuous loop between the research that we do and the education that we provide. That's, that's a great answer. I, I mean, one of, one of the perhaps it's unwarranted criticisms of academia in fast moving technology areas is often, um, how do they keep up with um, with with developments in technology? And I mean, this is one of the fastest moving technology areas, um, you know. And then you have the issue of standards lagging behind technologies as well. So there's there's all these kind of difficulties in the background of um, knowing how to implement um, something that's as new as um, Industry 4.0, or is it new? In fact, <laughs> it is hugely challenging, and I think. The key thing here is that we continue the communication. We, we sort of ensure that we're designing and developing future technologies and not necessarily stuck in what's available today. Um, so we need to solve today's challenges, but we also need to be a step ahead 
so that we've got the competitive edge yes yes i mean you've you've described a very good process where that that's a really good way of, of, of by working closely with you know mm -hmm. relevant organizations that's how to um how to develop it i, I guess and um and and take it from there um we had a poll that just flashed up um Andy, and it was about you know what what level of usage um, are our attendees making? Uh, here it is. Um, so, do you currently rely on time-based maintenance? And of course, we'd have lots of fun if we could break this down into um, different sized companies and different sectors and that sort of thing, which which we can't. But um, as as a general thumbnail, um, it seems to be pretty equally divided between people using time-based maintenance um not using um well not using time-based maintenance by which i assume they're more advanced and um and a hybrid approach um richard does that sort of fit in with what you expect people to say yeah i think you know for me there is still an over-reliance on time-based maintenance in in most factories that i i go and visit um and, and people you know not understanding the failure modes that are, that are impacting the assets and, and therefore using maintenance approaches that are actually going to induce early life failure rather than uh you know predict um a, a random failure event and actually the 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 oldest piece of research i found on this was actually from uh 1943 and it's the performance of a b24 liberator squadron uh on on anti-u-boat patrols from, from northern ireland uh, and, and a guy called Waddington, who was a you know operational researcher, you know demonstrated that uh, the most unreliable time the aircraft could possibly be was in the immediate aftermath of their planned maintenance, uh, when you know they'd taken the airplane to pieces to find out why it wasn't broken yet and inserted loads of early life failure. And actually, the longer time between scheduled planned maintenance events, the higher the availability and reliability of those airframes were. That, that's demonstrating that the plan, the time-based maintenance they're doing is value destroying, not not value creating. And I, and I see that in a lot of in a lot of our customers um, now. And I think just to build on the question about you know how do we how do we get people to understand and embrace these technologies, I'd, I'd agree completely with John and David's point around the um, education around digital. But I think for me, you've got to underpin that with the education around reliability theory as well, because otherwise you digitize and you digitize something you don't understand. Fabulous. Um, right. Well, we we actually have a, a question coming in, which is a good point for me to emphasize that we welcome questions from our attendees. So please don't be shy. And uh, one person who's not being shy is actually one of our colleagues who's who's Aaron. Um, and um, Aaron is asking a question that says, and um, let me get this right. So I'm trying to do 20 things at once. Um, Right, would the panel agree that although rightly we need to focus at developing skills at university education, one of the biggest issues facing skills is a lack of technicians coming through at further education level who will be hands-on with the digital transformation taking place in manufacturing? Who, who would like to, to take that one? I'd be happy to make a start, if that's okay. Um, I think, you know, looking at this, there is clearly a need and there is a lack of technicians coming through in this space, but I'd like to look at this as 
we've got the challenge of making decisions at strategic, operational, and tactical levels. Digital has to contribute at all of these levels. And I would suggest we need to look at this holistically. We shouldn't necessarily hone in just the technicians. If you talk, if you ask me, we need to look across those lef- levels. And, and, and if we look at the senior leaderships, I often hear from pretty much most companies that there is serious skills gaps in the leadership level as well. So my sort of proposal would be that we don't just hone in at one level. We need to look at this at all levels and we need to sort of consider how we have this ecosystem trained at a sufficient level. I mean, presumably, um, the, the one of the critical levels are, are, are older engineers because these are the guys who, who've seen the light and want to retire early, um, you know, tempted by COVID and various other factors, no doubt. So is that where one of the biggest gaps is, perhaps rather than younger technicians coming through? I think technicians coming through are embracing technology. They're using it every day. It's, and I think in one of the things we talk about putting it through education, but industry will drive the requirements of what skills are needed. And that should push education to provide the right courses. But there's an element around, there are other ways of gaining those skills. Um, Even if you're bringing in the technology and using the company that provides that technology to help educate the people who then got to use it. I mean, businesses will spend a load of money on a brand new fancy machine with all the new technology and all the systems on it and provide very little training. It'd be a one-day training course and how to press the main buttons to make it work. But what they really don't do is embed it into their maintenance schedule, embed it into the capture of digital um, information to then use to help run that machine effectively and make it a real, real value asset. Um, and there's, there's a real gap. So I think industry's got to drive the requirements and look at other ways of gaining those skills. You can't just expect education is going to provide the right courses. Mm. I, mean, I mean, one of the things that always bothers me and not, not just even in engineering, but, you know, we, we have a skills gap and then you've got this time lag between being able to solve the skills gap and uh, or train enough people to fill the, the skills gap and having the gap. So, you know, What's the solution to that? Is it is it bringing people in from from other countries and outside, or or how do we deal with it? I, I think um, you know you've got to you've got to tackle the skills gap at every level, as we've we've said. For me, uh, you, you know, equal is important to the people at the hands on level who are, who are doing the activity. It's actually the people who are making decisions about you know long term asset management, long term investment strategy, because. If you've got the, the the SMEs, you know, bottom up pushing, but they're pushing against, you know, people who don't believe, yeah, then actually you're never going to see the value. You've, you've got to make sure that the, uh, you know, that the senior leadership in the organisation see the value of moving to to you know data led decision making, um, and drive the you know lead the cultural change around data led decision making, uh, you know, as much as the people at the bottom. And I'd agree with David's point around the you know the technicians coming through with digital natives there these guys are you know a tech savvy but they don't necessarily understand the business context that they can drive value out of the technology so you, you've got to educate at both levels you've got to get the business leads you know you know demanding and, and leading the way on data-led decisions uh and then at the bottom you know people who are, who've got the skills to um 
uh, you know, to, to, to create the data? And, and the answer can't be to, you know, constantly, uh, you know, suck people in from, from other, other economies, uh, you know, other businesses. It's got to be about investing in that capability in, in UK PLC. It's got to be top, it's top down driven, really. You need, they need your leadership to, to build a digital strategy as part of their whole policy deployment. You know, how are you going to manage your business? How are you going to manage your assets? And beyond maintenance, your whole process is you get that back to that, looking at everything with a digital mindset. I like to make this differentiation between an effective strategy and an efficient process. You know, the, the leadership influences an effective strategy, which could potentially make in the order of 30 to 70% improvement in processes. An efficient uh, process is where you can actually push the boundaries for a good strategy. So in that sort of context, maybe you're achieving 10, 20, 30% improvements, but you need these to be hand in hand, designed, developed, and I think digital is an enabler for this. Okay. Um, the, another thing that that comes up is um, is the issue of merging different groups of engineers within one organisation because we have, you know, we have the tech savvy group um, coming through, um, and some older people with lots of experience but perhaps aren't quite so comfortable with the technologies. How how do you merge those cultures together in a most effective way? Anyone got any experience of, of that as a as a problem or an opportunity? Often putting putting the older engineers to work with the grads. I mean, as an older engineer myself, you know, I be it's a mindset, it's a culture thing as well. Um, but a lot of engineers are still want to be problem solvers. Um, and working with the younger grads who have got a different mindset, who are more um technology biased, um, work with it and you know, all day long and, and everything's tech for them. Um, it's just sort of putting those two together, and then and, and that often works really well, bringing in some young grads and fresh thinking um, to look at different ways of problem solving. Mm. I would and, agree and I guess they can learn from each other in a way. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, in the courses we've got, we have young, uh, sort of new graduates and those that are quite experienced. And what we've done is we've put them into groups, and what happens is they realize what each each person's good at and then they start to build these complementary teams and skills um, and and they learn from each other and appreciate each other more than before and i think that's also really valuable instead of separating them it's much better to sort of bring them together yeah. okay perhaps at this point we've got quite a few questions coming in but they might be might be best taken a little bit later on so uh, Let's move on to David's piece about condition monitoring and, um, you know, specifically, but not exclusively about the issue of legacy equipment and how we might deal with that. Okay, so I think sort of as Richard sort of alluded to, um, condition monitoring is really about understanding your equipment. So if you take a sort of machine inspection or a test like a car MOT, that's a snapshot in time of how that machine is currently performing. Once you've done that test, that's it. Until somebody comes along and looks at another piece of scheduled maintenance on that machine, you just run it. The beauty of conditional monitoring is it gives you real-time information 
So you can start tracking trends and patterns within the performance of that machine. So, and you can do that through a lot of either built-in sensors on newer equipment, but there's a lot of off-the-shelf um, additional sensors now, magnetic vibration sensors, there's um, pipe clamps that will measure flow. You can measure pressure. You can get cameras that will look at old analog gauges that will actually give you, turn it into a dashboard so you can put parameters in there. So you can now get real-time information on a regular basis. You don't want to overload yourself with every millisecond, but the right level of information gathering to look at the performance of that machine. So now you can start to see if motors are getting hot. You're getting additional vibration because you'll start to see where. That can then lead that once you start to read and gather more information, you can then move it over towards predictive maintenance when you start to see trends in temperatures rising on certain pieces of equipment or additional vibration, you can now plan and schedule and predict when something's going to fail. Because if you're a manufacturer, the worst thing you can get is an unplanned failure. That disrupts all of your production scheduling. You're letting your customers down. So a consistent production schedule where you're meeting all your customer requirements works around properly planned maintenance based on predictive information that you can get from these sensors. Um, and there's a lot of simple now software that you can get that will take the data from the sensors, interpret that, turn it into a dashboard that for a few hundred pounds, you can put a, you know, a fairly comprehensive system together that will give you really useful information. And if you think if you had nothing before, even if it's legacy equipment and you get some basic information on whether you're running current, pressures, temperatures and vibration, you start to get a real visual on how that machine's performing every day, real time. Thank you for listening to Talking Industry. This Talking Industry edition is sponsored by Drives and Controls Exhibition, the number one event for automation, power transmission and motion control, taking place 4th to the 6th of June 2024 at the NEC Birmingham. In association with Manufacturing and Engineering Week, drive the future at www.drives-expo.com. Stay tuned across all podcast apps, follow us on social, subscribe to our newsletters, and keep up to date at talkingindustry.org.